Imagine if there was a school where kids rushed in as fast as they rushed out. Imagine if there was a school where every student was set up to succeed. Imagine if there was a school where you could truly express who you are. Imagine if there was a school where students' voices, big and small, are heard alongside educators' voices, working together. Imagine if there was a school where we listen actively and challenge each other's ideas to help them grow. Imagine if there was a school where you were not limited by boundaries. Welcome to Village Stories, where we share our ideas for mind-bending and soul-stretching as we raise the bar for learning and teaching in all Australian schools. Our next guest on Village Stories has had over 15 years' experience teaching primary school as a teacher, as an assistant principal, and now deputy principal. An educator who is passionate about agitating for a better school adventure for every child, every day. I'm delighted to welcome Linfield Learning Village's primary deputy principal, Lou Deavy, to the show. Thanks for having me, Lou. All right, let's get started by saying uh, you've been teaching for a long time. What inspired you to make a change uh, in your career to start teaching a brand new school like Linfield Learning Village? Um, I I guess my flippant answer is who wouldn't? Um, Like I feel like it's a once in a lifetime opportunity and like you said, I've been doing this a long time so was sort of a now or never moment. Um, I'd also been in a context that had been really pushing the boundaries of what teaching and learning could look like here in Australia. Um, But in that context, it was um, turning an existing ship around which has quite different challenges to being able to start afresh and build something that doesn't even look like a ship. Um, so I think, you know, that that drive to um, reframe not just a school but public education in New South Wales um, is a really massive, massive um, undertaking, but one that we've been waiting for for a long time. So I can remember being at a conference at least 10 years ago um, entitled Whatever Happened to the Education Revolution. So we've been talking about this forever, um, for some reason, unable to actually make it happen. So I guess I saw this as an opportunity that um, we've been given permission to actually make it happen. Um, and so we're super keen to yeah jump on board. So with that inspiration then, I guess what does the education revolution look mm-hmm. like under the LLV model in the primary sector of yeah. a, a K-12 school? Yeah. Um, so I think um, we're not there yet and I think that that's the exciting thing is that um, it's a journey. Um, my personal philosophy is that if that uh, if I ever felt like we were there, it would be time to leave education full stop because I don't think we're ever going to feel like we're there. Um, whether you are a classroom practitioner or a principal, there's always more. It's a job that's never ending, um, which is why looking after yourself is so important because there is also, there's always something more you could be doing. Um, but to speak to what we currently have, and it's iterative, so what I'm going to describe now 
um, is different to the way it looked at the beginning of this year, the end of last year, definitely different to how things looked at the beginning of 2019, but I think some of the tenets have remained. So they're the things that we would describe as the non-negotiables. Um, they're foundational to the vision or they're foundational to the values. Um, they're foundational to the culture. So those are the things that I guess in a sense become the constraints when you're designing. What are the things that are non-negotiable as we continue to design and iterate the way we do teaching and learning here? Um, so currently, as we speak right now, um, we've um, split our primary section into two hubs, the K to two hub and then the three to six hub. Um, initially, uh, that happened as a response to the first COVID lockdown. Um, we were already working in stages, um, but we pushed that just a little bit more because we could. Um, and I guess we saw the COVID interruption as an opportunity rather than a problem. Um, and it was driven by a few things um, which have landed and which have changed the way we do things here. Um, so K's, ones and twos are in vertical pods. Um, pods foundational to our whole school model. Um, what is a pod? It's exactly what it sounds like. It's like a pod of dolphins and the pod has a mommy dolphin or a daddy dolphin and that's your family within the family that is Linfield Learning Village. Um, and so families are vertical. Families aren't all made up of 10 children all the same age. Um, so that's why we really value that vertical connection um, across our cohorts. Um, that's always been part of the model. So to go back to that, you know, non-negotiable, we've always wanted that vertical connection. Um, we just keep on looking at ways to make it happen and balance that with the logistics that are required to make those things happen. Um, so that pod group is my little family. Um, but then because I have eight to 10 teachers in that space, with all of those children, we can turn what normal differentiation would look like completely on its head and differentiate to the nth degree because you can group and regroup, group and regroup according to need on a daily basis. Um, and that would be true in three to six as well. Um, anyone who's got more than one child knows that there is not a perfect 45 degree line on a graph um, where you can plot the trajectory of a child's growth and development. Um, it's spasmodic, it plateaus, it appears to dip at times. Um, so I guess what we're trying to do is build a model that allows for that um, and doesn't batch bake. So we're not putting all of our kids in the oven at the same time, setting the temperature to the same temperature, getting it out after the same length of time, and hey presto, you've got you know 25 identical little gingerbread men. Um, because we know that people aren't like that. Uh, so everything we do is driven by a desire to meet every child where they are and grow them from there. Um, knowing that, yeah, that growth is not uh, predictable often. And I guess from a teacher's perspective, some of the questions might uh, come to mind. If, if a teacher's been teaching across stages, they might think that's really challenging. Uh, 
how do the the educators at Linfield Learning Village, I guess, deal with that challenge of having to uh, meet the needs of every child whilst constantly grouping and regrouping? Well, I mean, they're a group themselves, I, I guess. So the, for my first response to that is no teacher works in isolation here. Um, so collaboration, again, would be one of the tenets, the non-negotiables, um, and that's modelled across the whole school. So even down to the fact that... Um, we're still fighting with um, builders and and powers much higher up in the department than we are about not having offices that say principal, deputy principal, deputy principal. Um, we share a collaborative space and I would say there is not one decision that we make in that senior executive context that is not collaborative, that is not shared, that is not discussed. Um, Steph talks about um, never having felt so connected, um, having her previous experiences as a principal being lonely and isolated, um, whereas we're just, you know, the, the antithesis of that. So I think that, yeah, the first response is that you're never alone. Um, so you've constantly got colleagues to bounce all your decision-making on and off and also I think um, to bring their different um, expertise or areas of um, interest to the team approach to all of those children. Um, it's like having professional learning on tap the whole day um, because you're constantly learning from each other. Um, I think the other answer though to that question would be it's around the way we design the learning. Um, so it's not a teacher designing a discrete lesson and then working out how do I make that fit 30 children. We're actually thinking about how do we design learning that has what we call low floors, wide walls and high ceilings. So it's accessible to all. The walls are wide because we want children to be, go, to be able to go on a variety of journeys through the learning and the ceilings are so high that nobody's ever going to hit their head on them. Um, and that's why things like PBL or design-based learning or what we now call our quests, our transdisciplinary way of learning, are so important um, because they position the big idea or the wicked problem or the driving question at at the forefront of the learning and then children go get what they need to answer that driving question or solve that wicked problem which is when you get down to what you might think of as the more traditional um, direct instructional teaching and learning but it's happening just in time for when the children need it as opposed to just in case they need it next year or the year after by which time they're going to have forgotten it anyway. You touched on transdisciplinary learning there. Is that something that um, Linfield Learning Village has been doing from, from the start in 2019 or is that something else that has grown from the iterations of it the was, model? Yeah, great question. It was always part of the vision. So um, if I think back to those early days, there were a few pillars and um, the notion of transdisciplinary learning was definitely there. But there's, I think there's, um, there's a, a line that we've moved along um, perhaps interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary, and now actually we do talk about transdisciplinary because it has to be a mindset thing. You can't always connect all subjects, 
um, around a concept authentically. It becomes a bit of a stretch um, and that misses the point. So actually it's more about the mindset and when we talk about that what we're, what we're saying is it's actually no longer possible to solve the wicked problems of the world um, with one discipline. Um, they're too wicked. They're too hairy and audacious. They're too complex to be solved um, with one discipline. Um, so children need to be able to make those connections and educators need to be able to make those connections and move out of the silo that might be their subject. And I think, you know, I'm talking as a primary practitioner. We have less of an issue with that in primary because as a primary practitioner, you learn to teach everything. You might be particularly passionate about elements of the curriculum but um, we are taught to teach everything and we're expected to teach everything so it's actually somewhat foolish to then divide that back up into discrete lessons in a primary context when there's so much crossover naturally in the curriculum. Um, I think it's been much harder for our high school practitioners and colleagues to get their heads around that because they see themselves as experts in their subject as opposed to experts in teaching and learning or children. Um, so I think that, that that's an important distinction. But yes, it's always been part of the vision. Um, I think the reason it wasn't easy is um, because it's a little bit frightening, I think, for teachers who've not had that experience before. Um, there's a lot of misunderstandings or a lot of myths, I think, about, oh, no, but I have to have 40 minutes of history on my timetable or um, somebody's going to come and sack me. Um, so I think it's actually about giving permission often to just rethink things um, and to see that actually I can quite comfortably tick the box that says I've taught 40 minutes of history embedded with geography and English and uh, PDHPE or whatever it is that's emerged in that context. Are there some really um, exciting success stories mm -hmm. that, that you've had in the primary context using this as part of the model? Um, yes, many. Um, I think to go right back to our first year, I guess one of our highlights would have been by the end of that year when um, lots of things had emerged that then became practice. We had um, basically an entrepreneurial um, idea that children would be able to create something from nothing. So it was sort of, you know, shoestring budget stuff. Um, and every child from kindergarten to year 10 at the time, we didn't have 11s and 12s that year, um, created a product which was then sold at our Twilight Christmas markets. Um, and I think that as much as some of the products were beautiful, it wasn't about the product, it was about the learning and the process that they went on to get there. Um, you know, there's lots of... Um, phrases like um, necessity is the mother of invention or you know those sorts of things it's um, constraints which actually push people to be really creative and I think what we saw in that context was um, a, a kind of blossoming of the understanding of a design thinking um, mindset um, 
people really having to push themselves. They couldn't buy themselves out of a problem. They actually had to really push themselves to design and create from nothing. Um, the fun and the excitement around having an authentic audience who actually came and bought your stuff, um, not just because they felt sorry for you, but because it was actually really cool. Um, and for the, to hear, actually, I think the most powerful thing was to talk to the students about their experience and about the journey and what they'd finally come up with and you know what had failed spectacularly on the way and how they'd got up and dusted themselves off and learned from that so I'd say and there are many examples like that um, this year we've had a lot of projects happening in the three to six space particularly that have been extraordinary um, and that have demonstrated that embedding a really strong understanding of something like design-based thinking in our kids is what the world wants and needs. Like we're a tiny school relatively still, um, but we've made it to the finals of Game Changers, which is a New South Wales whole government initiative. Um, and the feedback that that little team of girls in year five and six got was that these kids clearly know design thinking inside out. They didn't just learn it to enter the of game changes so I think that there would be lots of sort of anecdotal stories around that um, I think at a at a really simple level um, kids love coming to school so at the moment I was laughing this morning because you know big part of my job right now is car park and you know directing cars and traffic morning and afternoon um, and I'm watching children run into school and I remember somebody once saying you can sort of measure the vibe of your school by asking the question, do kids run in as fast as they run out at the end of the day? And I would say absolutely, 100%. Our kids fall out of the cars and run in. Um, and I think that that's just a mark of them wanting to be here, um, loving their friends, the vibe, their autonomy, um, and just loving the learning. And I guess I'm a big believer in if, you, if you're having fun, the learning will follow. And I guess that's a perfect feedback. And I, I do remember my, one of my first uni lecturers saying the same thing. You want, you want your kids running to your class and walking to leave because yeah. they don't want to leave. And I guess that's a fantastic bit of feedback for, for what's happening at LLV. Um, on the flip side, uh, what have been some of the challenges that uh, you face yourself and and the primary team in building a new school and moving away from I guess the norm of mm. of education and what students and parents and even teachers have been used to for mm. for a long time. I could give you multiple examples, but I'm going to just hone in on one. Um, because I think this captures it for all three of those stakeholders that you've mentioned, and that's um, the rewards-punishment conversation. Um, so I think for many years, even unknowingly, unwittingly, part of a primary school teacher's toolkit is a smiley face on the board or a sticker um, and by the same token, a sad face on the board that you put children's names in and or you give them a strike and those sorts of practices um, it doesn't work and it's that simple it doesn't work that you know the science again and again says it doesn't work in fact I shared an article with um, a few colleagues just across the weekend because I found something that said 150 studies 
all found the same thing, that kids need these three things. They need to be able to say, I can do it, I can choose it, and I belong. Like, well, duh. (laughs) Um, That's self-determination theory, and that's what sits at understanding motivation. Um, If we don't understand intrinsic motivation and we don't understand the basic needs of a person in a community, and we all need the same thing, so teachers need those things too. They need to have a sense that they are competent, they can can do what they need to do, um, that they are connected in authentic relationship with their community, they belong here, um, and that they have autonomy, that they're not being micromanaged. So... Those same three things apply to to all stakeholders in our community. Um, so I think the challenge around that is the the lack of belief that that can possibly be true. So as a parent, what do you mean you're not going to p- punish the child who called my child something unmentionable? Um, well, you need to trust me that the follow-up that we do with that child is going to be far more significant than um, keeping them in at lunchtime uh, or forcing them to make an apology with gritted teeth and, you know, fingers crossed behind their backs. Um, The same with the teacher. What do you mean I can't keep a kid in at lunchtime? Well, you don't have the right to. Um, You know, you'll hear teachers say, you've wasted my time, so I'm going to waste yours. Well, actually, in that context, with the adult, with a paid professional, we need better tools than tit for tat. Um, and then I suppose as the child, what do you mean? Is my work not good enough for a sticker? Um, is my work, can? oh, I've done a really good job, I've finished, can I get something from your treat box? And I was talking to a teacher the other day who was asked this question, she said, well, I don't have a treat box, you know. So it's about breaking that need for an extrinsic motivator or or an extrinsic punishment um, and actually rebuilding in teachers the capacity to make their learning um, and their teaching so engaging that kids just want to do it because it's fun. So here we are, we're back to the fun again, right? Um, if kids aren't engaged in my learning and I'm struggling because I can't use threats or rewards, then I've got to ask myself, how interesting is this really? Have I really designed a fun, engaging lesson here or do, was it just fun for me when I was planning it? So I say that, that, and that would be a really good example of old habits and or my, my personal experience as at school. Well, it worked for me, so it'll work for my children. So I think because everybody's experienced school, either as... Um, you know, an educator themselves or just as a parent, they have their strong memories of their own schooling. Um, Everybody has an opinion on school and teaching and learning. So it's not like medicine where we wouldn't dream of telling the doctor (laughs) what to do. Um, I think everybody thinks that they can have an opinion on education. Um, So I think there's a lot of unlearning and unraveling. And I think there's a lot of fear and that's okay. Um, it's okay to be fearful, but I think you have to really dig when people are fearful to find out what the real fear is because it's often not the thing that it looks like. It's often something much deeper than that. 
have there been misconceptions about the school from from all of the stakeholders, but particularly parents, about what the new model looks like? Um, and I guess if there have been misconceptions, uh, what are some of them that maybe listeners might better understand? Yeah. Um, yes, uh, sure answer, yes, many. Um, look, the, the bright, new, shiny thing is always really attractive. Um, and I think that's, you know, what lots of people saw, a bright, new, shiny thing. Even though for the first two years we were only in a tiny portion of the bright new shiny thing and it wasn't very shiny at all and it was really hard work because it wasn't fit for purpose at that point in time. Um, so I think a few things, um, a few things that we're not, we're not a hippie school, <laughs> contrary to the most recent um, article, which was very lovely and very encouraging and came off the back of a an independent educational review um there was a quote and it was in quote months um we're not we're not a hippie school we are grounded in years and years of research we have a shared bibliography that goes across multiple pages um and i guess we are you know it's the collective wisdom and the collective efficacy that 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 means that um because we are collaborative, we've brought every single educator's experience um, to the table and built from there. So we didn't start from scratch in that sense. We started from hundreds of years that we represented as a group of teachers of experience in education. Um, so we're not making stuff up. Um, I think another big misconception was that... Um, and it's, I guess it's connected with that hippie school um, idea is that kids could choose to do nothing if they wanted to. That um, the word agency or autonomy was misunderstood. Um, agency or autonomy means you have a voice and you will be heard, but it doesn't mean you get your way. It doesn't mean you get to choose to do nothing. Um, so I think there were a, a, there was a little bit of misconception around there. I think when we talk about personal learning, um, that could be misinterpreted as my child gets their own teacher. We are a very normal New South Wales Department of Education school. We have the same teacher-pupil ratios as any other school. Um, we don't have extra funding. We don't have extra special um, learning support teachers. Um, so again, I think perhaps that was um, a misunderstanding um, of the word personal. Uh, I think like anything that's new, um, you can say things and people don't believe them. So I can remember doing um, some tours early in the piece where we would tour um, prospective parents. And we often talk about what we don't do as opposed to what we do do. So just like we don't do rewards and punishments, we don't really do exams either. Um, and because we think there are better ways to assess what children can and can't do and therefore what they need next and we want to assess children when they need assessing not just a blanket assessment for everybody because it suits me and the, this particular um, parent asked me the same question four or five times I think she just couldn't believe what I was saying I kept saying no you can ask me a hundred times but the answer's not going to change and that's just an inability again like we said before to un 
learn my experience and to reimagine what it could look like to assess a child if it's not an exam. Um, so assessment's a really good example too. Um, it's funny you should mention that because I remember my very first lecture uh, at a at first year teaching um, lecture, the lecturer said, high stakes testing like the HSC is not the way to go. And yet... Here we are. Here we are. <laughs> and 10 weeks later, that same subject had high stakes testing right. part of it. So it was really interesting that uh, even... 10 years ago, universities were saying yeah. this, but it, it didn't well, change practice you know, in that, that very yeah, university. That's really interesting because um, my university experience is a long time ago um, and it was English, but um, I did not sit an exam at university, not for my first degree, nor for my postgraduate, um, which is interesting, mm. right? So I think that we haven't talked about my background, but um, in terms of having come here from England, um, and I'm not speaking to where they're at right now because it's different, um, but at that time, my training was for exactly what we're doing now, which is interesting in itself because that's 30 years ago. Um, but my training was hands-on, experiential, transdisciplinary, immersive um, assessing as you went, you know, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. My first classroom actually had fifty. Um, uh, they were called Rising Fives in England. So you can start school in England the year you turn five, and you can actually then start. You start part time, and then you go full time when you turn five. So what does that create? It creates a really fluid in and out cohort so you can't teach in a traditional way because half the children would miss stuff so you actually have to design a learning environment which is much more fluid than that um, so I had 50 children and I was the only teacher um, and I was supported by the equivalent of a couple of teachers aides so I think even that experience made me feel like I was set up for this experience um, in many ways. And I guess then that leads me to my last question. In terms of being set up for this experience, have you had any influences um, outside of the school that maybe have have led you down this path, whether it be a researcher or yeah. another teacher who's really had an impact on your um, mm. professional career? Um, yes, always. I mean, I, I suppose, like I just said, I was sort of set up for this um, I'm also the daughter of two teachers so I guess I tried not to be a teacher <laughs> um, but had to finally give in and and came back to it and it was interesting because I felt like all of my other life experiences made sense when I finally gave in and came back to the classroom um, so I had a lot of experience in the in the world of theatre for example um, which is Interesting. I've done a presentation for um, a couple of conferences over the years, um, teachers as creatives. So I think if we reframe the way we think and believe about the teacher role, um, we can do this work because um, if we think about ourselves as creatives rather than didactic imparters of knowledge, um, that completely reframes what the job is. 
um, comparing it to being an actress, for example, I need to know my le- I need to know my lines, but I also need to be prepared for forgetting my lines or for somebody else forgetting their lines and being able to roll with it in the moment and know enough about the the play, the roles, where the story's going, to be able to roll with that. I feel like that's quite like being in the classroom. Um, I know the curriculum inside and out. And because I do, I can roll with that. I can actually duck and weave and follow the desires and the wants and the needs of the children because I'm so grounded in my craft and what I know. Um, so I think I've sort of been influenced by by strange things like that. So like by a career in the theatre, um, by, the, by the notion of thinking of myself as a creative and that doesn't mean that I can paint or dance or you know do pottery or anything it means I can think creatively about how something might look different um, so I think I've been influenced by lots of other things that are not school um, and I think that's really important because I think until school feels like the rest of the world it will always be not as effective as it could be um it will always feel like uh like it's almost like a rite of passage you have to go from year five to year 10 or 11 at the least um you have to go in one end and you have to come out the other well and i'm going to say well why why do you why can't it be in and out um you know why can't i take all of year five or six out for a year and um, have a program that looks quite different and doesn't rely on school Um, and of course we're getting into logistics there's lots of reasons why I can't because parents have to go to work and schools double as a babysitting service and all of those other things but I guess it's about really pushing the boundaries Um, when it comes to influences I mean I I think there are many um, and there are the big names like Ken Robinson and Sugatra Mitra and people like that but then there are also just the colleagues that you meet and I think that um, if I think back to my last few years prior to coming here um, you've got to find your tribe Um, you've got to find other people who want to be on the journey with you who um, you can bounce your ideas off who are as brave as you um, yeah who will walk this journey with you Um, because it's hard Uh, nobody said the work was easy Um, it's really hard but I think because because you've got a tribe and here we have a massive tribe which is awesome um, because you've got a tribe even when it's hard you you can keep going because you, you never feel like you're on your own perfect and on on that note we'll we'll end the uh the interview but thank you so much for your time lou and uh we look forward to maybe having this chat again and and going uh, diving deeper into the story of llv so thank you again awesome thank you lou linfield learning village is a school of the future Within a flagship school building, the new educational model will fundamentally shift the way we think about school and will shape the education revolution over the next decade. Tune in for more village stories and to find out more, head to our website, linfieldlearningvillage.com.au.